Hello and welcome to the Sellerman Podcast. Uh, this time I'm speaking to a bit of a hero of mine, actually. He's not only the man behind, I think, one of our great cheeses, Havard Cheddar, a uh, beautiful raw milk uh, cheddar cheese. If you've never had it, seek it out, find it, eat it. It is delicious. Um, but Patrick is a farmer, cheesemaker and an activist. Um, he campaigns for organic and sustainable farming, farming and he is the founding director of the Sustainable Food Trust. Uh, you should definitely look them up. Um, uh, have a listen to their podcast that they have as well on their on their site and on SoundCloud. Read the blogs. It's all fascinating. It's all incredibly compelling and fundamentally it's all very hopeful it looks forward to a future where farming and the environment sit in in a happy equilibrium and so yeah it was a real real pleasure for me to get to speak to patrick but obviously like everybody else his business is struggling in the midst of the covid crisis so uh, i found out how he was doing uh, how he was adapting and how he was looking to the future a dramatic impact almost immediately uh, our market is split between wholesalers, uh, people like Niels Yardary, who uh, themselves have, I think, a third third split between third 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 split between retailing, wholesaling, and exporting. And we were the beneficiary of all three of those channels. So that was the, uh, Niels Yardary, our biggest customer. But then people like Andy Swinscoe. Uh, at Courtyard Dairy, also take a lot of our cheese and Bath fine cheese, and there are other more local wholesalers and some of the other big cheese wholesalers. So when the cheese went through them, of course, a lot of it went to food service, some of it went to food export, and both those markets have diminished dramatically. And then even, as we know, some of the um, higher-end specialty cheese shops have also suffered because they haven't been uh, regarded by shoppers as essential shopping territory, but rather luxury shopping territory, which is a sad thing in its own right. So one way and another, I would say that were it not for the sort of green shoots of the boundless innovation that seems to be the characteristic of the food producing community, our sales would have declined by about 75%. It's not quite as bad as that because of what's happening with um, direct sales, you know, mail order, online, that sort of thing. Yeah, you're managing to temper. I mean, in a sense, I spoke to Johnny Crickmore a couple of weeks ago now, um, uh, you know, similar position in a sense, very different cheese, but, you know, a dairy farmer with, with a herd, uh, you know, the cows need milking, there's the pressure to do something with the milk. It's not like some cheesemakers who just go to their milk supplier, I'm sorry, I'm not going to buy any milk off you. You've got that, you know, specific direct push happening, whatever you do. Um, and and he said it, that the key for them was being able to uh, change tack almost overnight. And actually, Jason Hines used the word pivot. You know, a lot of people in the cheese industry are are sort of madly pivoting to try and move from one. So in your case, you know, a lot of food trade sales to direct sales. And and have you found there's been a real uptake with that then? Yes, but I wouldn't say it's uh, anywhere near made up for what we've lost and hopefully we'll get back from the customers that we value so much. Um, but maybe we've only just seen the beginning of the potential of this new way of making direct contact with people who produce food um, and those who buy it. I think this could be the beginning of a whole new chapter in relocalizing uh, food systems. I, I certainly hope so. 
and I can't believe things will ever be quite the same again. The, the first few conversations I had for, for, for this Selman podcast were speaking to people who were who were kind of scrabbling to kind of catch themselves in a sense i feel like now we're entering a period where people are hitting some sort of a rhythm that's not to say it's not incredibly hard for a lot of people but there, there is a sort of a concept of what this is now i think that's right and uh, i think a lot of people are suffering more than we are i mean compared to say johnny crickball who's producing a, a a soft cheese and a relatively short marketing window cheese that's much harder Whereas we're producing, because it's a cheddar-style cheese we're producing, it's got a kind of marketing window of up to a year, uh, which means that we can hunker down and accept that our sales are going to be decimated for a while, knowing that the cheese is not going to spoil. So that, that makes us lucky. And uh, so, But I do think you're right, that we have moved out of the immediate emergency phase into not exactly a new normal, but a... Uh, an adjustment to completely different market conditions mm. and this is giving rise to creative thinking and innovation and hopefully some of the innovations that are arising will be more uh, become a permanent part of the landscape of food marketing in the future. Well and what, what are those sort of specific uh, elements that, that I think probably we, we're both keen to see uh, become a bit more of a fixture for you? Well I spoke to a man called Joel Salatin, who's one of the America's best known regenerative farmers. Uh, he doesn't have a dairy business, but uh, he is a livestock farmer, um, grassland feeder, but he also has pastured chickens and pigs. And he uh, was in a conversation with the woman who looks after his secretarial stuff. And she said, you know, why don't you try a, a pop-up virtual market a farmer's market in the local town uh, so he did this and uh, he persuaded a restaurateur to lend him uh, their parking lot who was also a baker so the deal was you can use my parking lot if we can sell our bread um, and it's literally it's become in a few short weeks a drive-through farmers virtual <laughs> farmers market and basically people order online a meat box in his case and then they turn up at the parking lot and they literally drive through the parking lot and collect their pre-ordered meat box or cheese box or veg box or whatever it is um and i love that idea i love the idea that the fast food drive-through mm. concept is now being sort of acquired and modified by the artisan cheese cookie and livestock community why not Absolutely. So I think those are models that work so seamlessly well, but for a sort of low quality product so to, to be kind of co-opted by. Yeah, exactly. I think that's really, you know, Johnny used the word excited. You know, he's ex excited. He catches himself finding this situation exciting, which is perhaps a little perverse, given what we've just talked about, for, you know, the troubles he's facing. But there is a sort of yeah. a, the, the industry feels adrenalized at the moment. And that's when innovation happens. Yes, it's scary but exciting. And it's an irony that the supermarkets who have cut back on selling good food, proper food as I would call it, because they're just coping with a great surge of customer demand because of all the restaurants and food service people that have given up or had to give up, um, they are actually uh, intensifying and further commoditizing the food that they're selling 
whilst at the other end of the spectrum, there's this sort of renaissance of um, direct selling of uh, farmers making new contact with their cust end customers, finding new routes to market, much more online and local stuff. It's really exciting. It'll be very interesting to see how this all pans out because it seems to me that it's wrong that supermarkets or large food companies should ignore the growing interest that there is in real food, artisan food, artisan cheeses, etc. But at the moment they are, and it'll be remain to be seen whether they actually in the long run lose customers through because they ignore that emergent market. Do you think that's in part because, uh, I guess, a smaller scale individual producer can be much more reactive and flexible in the way that they, you know, get to their market, whereas a supermarket is quite a lumbering beast in comparison? I wonder if it is just a matter of time or whether they are ignoring the, the sector that we're discussing. Well, I think you're absolutely right. They're like a great super tanker and they've taken their, their supply systems to the nth degree of centralisation. So most supermarkets now will have, you know, one uh, packer for each of the vegetables they sell, one abattoir for each species of livestock, and one distribution center, et cetera, et cetera. It's got to the point now where if there's something radical and new which is emerging, uh, they might not even notice it until it had got to quite some scale. And their traditional way would be to sort of acquire the, the, the new start company and then make it part of the rain. But it's difficult for a supermarket to do that because the model that we're discussing now is relocalizing things. And that goes against the whole trend of supermarket practice over the last 40 or 50 years. Mm -hmm. It'd be very, very interesting to see what they do because I remember I used to grow carrots here on our farm in West Wales. And in 1980, I went to the co-op uh, in Lampeter, my nearest town said to the manager, would you like to, uh, to sell my bunched carrots or buy my bunched carrots? And he says, yes, we would. And I did a roaring trade. I think it was up to 200 bunches a day they were selling, uh, just taking them into the back of the store. But of course, that has all become impossible. Mm. Uh, but now I hear that some supermarkets are contemplating doing that again. And I think that those that adapt will possibly survive. And those that don't may end up just be becoming you know, real estate relics uh, mm. and, and actually uh, fail. I think it's interesting. I was speaking uh, to Jason at Neil's Yard about this word local. And I think, you know, for so long, local has been defined by the idea, you know, sort of geographical idea of what is local. So, you know, in your case, the, the local carrot producer, you know, taking his 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 produce to the local co-op. Um but I think the way that actual individuals, so, you know, a customer sitting at home, say, in East London is accessing and supporting local is by going online and using websites. I think there's there's a newish one. It's a sort of a database called Farms to Us. Um, I actually came across them on Instagram, but it's just an online database, very basic website of lots of different producers who will deliver to you, who will, you know, so lots of cheese makers are on there. Uh, you know, a few fishermen down in Cornwall are doing it, meat producers. Anyway, the idea is that in a sense that local, because of the internet and because of the way we shop from our laptops or even our phones, you can support a local food system in, in a very different geographical location from where you actually live. And I, I sort of wonder what your take on that move was. I, I think it's, you're absolutely right. And this is about provenance, isn't it? And it seems to me that 
the new buying prescription for all of us ought to be don't buy food unless you know where it came from, preferably something about the identity of the, the actual producer, but certainly the production system. And those bits of information about provenance are mostly denied to us when we shop in supermarkets. That has to change. I believe it will change after all this, because I think people are realizing that anonymous food from you know, commodity slave farmers who have been forced to industrialize and, and uh, compromise on the quality of their farming systems is not the future for public health or indeed for the health of the planet. So I think that if you can identify a product which might even, dare I say, come from the other side of the world. I mean, it's interesting that I talk, I'm talking about local food, but we had an Instagram connection yesterday from a retailer in San Francisco with a picture of a Havod cheese being a whole and then being cut, uh, looking absolutely beautiful. It made me feel very proud. And we've also got a, a similar following in Australia. So our cheese is going all over the world. And sometimes that makes me think, is this right? Is it really sustainable? But on the other hand, it's a dense, high-value product. And if you believe that Scot Scottish whiskey should go all over the world, why not uh, high-quality cheese? So in our case, it sounds like I'm trying to justify it, but I do believe that there is a case for international trade in uh, high-quality nutrient-dense foods which have really strong provenance. Well, and I suppose as well, those products, uh, you know, that there's an argument um, that, you know, a focus on on high quality, high value products like that, they, they have to kind of balance them, themselves out on a kind of an environmental way. And, and a lot of, you know, what I've read and listened to you say about, the, you know, the concept of the way farming should go. In fact, a lot of those products are produced by, farmers like yourself who are absolutely connected to the land who are trying their best to, to farm in a sustainable way you know jo johnny johnny certainly looking at all sorts of different ways to make his farm you know more kind of a, a sort of a closed system if you like in, in terms of you know carbon neutral and all that kind of thing do, do you think it's not just an environmental question but a kind of quality of food question as well that people are talking about i think the two are linked and i think uh people's motives for buying high quality food um, are probably first and foremost sensory and health related, but there are also now compelling reasons to change the way in which we farm to uh, help avoid irreversible climate change and to protect biodiversity. And if you think about it, the terroir of a cheese relates to the soil of the farm. And uh, if you are a farmer using uh, nitrogen fertilizer, chemical fertilizers, and pesticides, you are certainly depressing, if not eliminating, the microbiological life of the soil. And the, that soil life um, is intimately connected with plant nutrition uh, and also plant diversity. So that further down the chain, somebody said you are what you eat eats. So in the case of cheese, uh, the cheese is what the cow eats. And if the cow is eating, you know, uh, monocultured grass grown with chemical fertilizer, it's not going to be as, the milk is not going to be as interesting as if the, 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 the farm and the grassland is farmed in, a, uh, in harmony with nature. So what's driven us right from when we came here, which is 1973, 
uh, was to try to farm in harmony with nature. I became very involved with the promotion of organic farming. Um, and in fact, I wrote what I think might be, I think probably was, the world's first draft of the organic dairy farming standards, just because I was a dairy farmer on the Soil Association Livestock Standards Committee at the time. But I now believe that all farmers, including dairy farmers, need to adjust and change their farming systems in, in response to the climate change emergency and the biodiversity loss emergency, and now the food security emergency. And we need to farm in such a way that nature can heal and coexist with our farming system. So that's what we're trying to do here. And although we're still an organic farm, we're in fact the longest certified organic dairy farm in Wales now, I think our cheese is selling, hopefully, because of its quality and because of its terroir, rather than just because it's organic, like in a branded sort of way. Well, I, do you know what? I, I'm, I would say, I mean, I'm from a wholesale cheese background. I used to work for Rory Buchanan. Um, and I would suggest that people buy your cheese because it's delicious. I don't think actually many of our customers, we, I certainly never used the fact that it was organic as a sort of a direct sales pitch, if you like. It, it was try this piece of cheese and then we'll talk about all the other stuff that goes with it. So I think in a sense, that's, you know, there's a sort of a dual responsibility to, to further your cause and the general cause is that the, the, the final outcome has to be delicious. And, and I would say that it, it more often than not is more delicious because of what you've just talked about, that complexity of flavour. and you know. Well, I believe that I believe that's right. And it's very kind of you to say that. And I actually, from my own experience recently, I think our cheese is fairly consistently delicious. And I think mm. not more than that, it reflects the, it tastes of our farm. It's a funny thing to say, but it, when I taste it, when I'm not here, it reminds me of the farm because the farm has a unique ecosystem and, you know, the cheese store and everything. It's, it's, it's its own sort of organic whole. And uh, I think the cheese tastes of that. But what is interesting is that if you look back in the span of history of the development of the artisan cheese movement in the UK, I remember when a great friend of mine, uh, who sadly was killed in a tractor accident in 1995, Dougal Campbell, was involved making a soft cheese called Pencareg, which was the result of the pooling of milk of a number of local dairy farmers, organic dairy farmers, of which we were one. Randolph Hodgson, founder of Neil's Yard Dairy, and of course, you know, the uh, Specialist Cheesemakers Association, etc., great man, said he wouldn't buy this cheese. This is called Pencareg. And he wouldn't buy it because it wasn't good enough. So I think that you could say that quite a lot of the early pioneers of organic farming, they might have been relatively good farmers, but they didn't necessarily know and understand the art of uh, transforming their raw materials into products which would taste good as well. So it's not a, a foregone conclusion that if something's organic, it will automatically taste good when it's made into wine or cheese or jam or whatever. But if you can master the art of cheese making and you farm in, a, in harmony with nature, then I do think you will get very fine tasting food. So I do believe the two are connected. Do, do you feel like this sort of greater, I, I suppose I'm speaking from my observation here, so that there's no sort of evidence for this other than conversations I've had and what I'm seeing, uh, is there's a greater awareness of of everything around us some sometimes in a kind of paranoid way is that person less than two meters away from me on the pavement but also you, you become very aware of the small businesses around you you become much more aware of I guess you know what it takes to create 
a piece of delicious cheese you you know and i and i've sort of i'm i'm sort of heavily embedded in that world but i know that other people are starting to become more and more aware it is this crisis in fact a, an opportunity f- to further you know your cause but the cause of of you know good quality locally produced and i'm not just talking cheese now but food and drink uh, across the uk and, and and further abroad i believe it absolutely is and it's as you say it's not my cause it's our cause hmm. because our cause is the cause of farming in harmony with nature and producing a genuine delicious surplus of food from the natural capital that we're looking after our soils and our you know the, the land that we farm and that really is, uh, I think, a necessity if we're going to have a livable planet. And the amazing thing, the you know, paradoxical thing about the whole pandemic and the uh, coronavirus uh, uh, episode is these having this silver lining of waking people up uh, to the importance of thinking more deeply about these issues. And it's almost like you know, animals when the tsunami is coming. I think people are. Uh, aware that you can't take food security for granted, but also they're questioning the provenance of their food in a way that they never used to. And that's potentially really exciting. Uh, It's going to be a complicated transition, I believe, between the highly centralized and industrialized food systems which we have, which I just was mentioning, and a new situation where people can get access to really high quality food, which is also affordable, uh, with distribution systems that work and are efficient, but I'm sure we can do it. And that's the after. That's the after that we're all hoping for. I mean, obviously, you know, I'm talking to a cheesemaker and a farmer and I work in cheese. So our focus in many ways is cheese and food and drink. And, you know, what we're talking about will come at a cost. But, uh, you know, the, 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 maybe the future is, is different and perhaps better after all of this. Well, you mentioned the, the cost uh, of food and... Uh, I wanted to pick up on that because we, meaning my organization, the Sustainable Food Trust, produced a report in 2017, which we refreshed actually last year, called The Hidden Costs of UK Food. And the headline conclusion from that report was that for every pound we spend on food in the shops, there's another hidden pound, which doesn't appear on the um, on the price label, of costs which include damage to the environment, climate change, water pollution, air pollution, damage to public health, um, which then gives the appearance of cheap food when it isn't really cheap at all. So in other words, we have dishonest food pricing, and that makes it very difficult for farmers and food producers who want to produce or sell more sustainably produced food because we're up against what you could refer to in an unfashionable sense as an economic headwind, uh, which we have to overcome before we can get our place in the market. And to give you a case study in relation to cheese, you can go into a supermarket and buy, you know, let's say um, Sainsbury's Taste the Difference or um, Tesco Finest Mature Cheddar for whatever it is, around £12 a kilo, but I'm guessing at the price, but let's say it's around that. But you're probably going to have to pay twice that for our cheese. Um, You could say, well, why is there such a huge price difference? Well, part of it is, you could argue, that it's a a different product and it's produced, it's handmade, it's got the terroir and all that sort of thing. But 
it's also because the very large scale and intensively produced milk, which is probably the source of the supermarket cheese, has uncosted environmental damage associated with it, which the producer doesn't pick up, and therefore you have the illusion of cheapness when in fact the real price that society is paying is much higher than that. And I think that that has created an unfair disadvantage for the artisanal cheese community, along with many other food sectors, including notably chickens, where you can get, you know, a pastured organic chicken, you probably have to pay about 12 pounds for it, but you can go into Tesco and buy a chicken for three pounds 50, which isn't really three pounds 50 if you add in all those hidden costs. It's the application of the polluter pace principle. And when Michael Gove was Secretary of State for um, DEFRA, uh, I said to him, would you introduce the polluter pace principle into farming? It's illogical that in every other sector, uh, the polluter pace principle is applied, but in agriculture, somehow farmers get away with it. Mm. And he said, yes, he would. But, you know, he, he, was, uh, he had the, the gift of the gab and a, a silken tongue. But in fact, uh, whether or not the government of the day would introduce the polluter pace principle into agriculture, knowing that the one of the consequences of that tax or series of taxes would be that the price of so-called cheap food would go up. That's a political question. And I think the answer is most governments would be frightened of doing that unless they thought there was pressure of the voters in favour of uh, that policy introduction, which there so, should be. So in reality, what we're talking about, not just in the change of policy, but also in the change of habit and you know how we prioritize when we shop really the responsibility lies with you know the consumer with with everybody yeah i think we're the powerful ones if we 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 vote with our food purchasing as well as um, you know in, in elections and we by if we shift our food purchasing preferences to buying artisanal uh, food that comes from a sustainable farming system with high provenance local where appropriate, maybe using the new localness term that you describe, that could literally transform farming. But in an ideal world, you want bottom-up, which is what we can do, citizens can do, but also you need a bit of top-down. And it is only, as you said, it's only the governments that can regulate and tax uh, practices which are causing damage to climate change or biodiversity. And we need to urge the government to do that. So that was Patrick Holden there. Um, if you want to find out more about Havard Cheese, go to Havard Cheese uh, on Instagram, which is H-A-F-O-D Cheese, or have a look at the Sustainable Food Trust, which is the Sus Food Trust, so S-U-S Food Trust on Instagram, or just have a look at their website. Uh, as I said in the introduction, it's fascinating stuff, and I think really important and really compelling and really relevant to the times we live in now i look forward to seeing you for the next Salomon podcast the Salomon podcast is produced by me sam wilkin if you want to know more about Salomon, go to Salomon sam on instagram and twitter or check out the website salomon.co.uk.